I'm watching these communities be like, there's not a truth. Yeah. I have mine and I know you have yours and we are going to keep walking another step together with both of these truths or all of these truths walking with us. Set your wine glass briefly down. Stand. And feet about hip width apart. Just set it down. No, you want to hold it. Yeah, okay. I want to capture it. Um, so feet about hip width apart, and let your shoulders drop. Let your arms fall down to the side of the body. We're just going to be in the body. The body is where writing happens, right? We just write with our bodies, our minds, ourselves. And if you're sucking in your tummy or sucking in your butt or anything like that, just like relax. Let it go. You have the body you have. Sucking in is not going to change. Okay. <laughs> And all of the work is in the lineage of Octavia Butler, who was a black science fiction writer um, and who was really a visionary fiction. Like We think of her as like one of the first people really writing visionary fiction. And so she offered us these words. And so if everyone will close their eyes, drop in your own little solar system, and repeat after me. All that you touch, you change. All that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. All that you change, changes you. The only lasting truth is change. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. God is change. Cool. 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 Okay. I'm Autumn Brown. Uh, wait, <laughs> but you don't say it with such gravitas. You just say I'm it. Autumn Brown. <laughs> How do you go? You actually say a little bit about yourself. Like, no. I'm Autumn Brown, Mother of Dragons, oh. all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, hold on. Okay. Let me get myself in the headspace. Yeah. I'm Autumn Brown, a queer science fiction writer, a theologian, a mother of dragons and a healing justice facilitator for social movements living in rural Minnesota. And on sabbatical. On an obvious sabbatical. <laughs> Apparently. And I'm Adrian Marie Brown, author of Emergent Strategy and Pleasure Activism, editor of Octavia's Brood, auntie to the most extraordinary people in the world, um, social justice facilitator primarily for black liberation work, and I live and play in Detroit. And this is our podcast, How to Survive the End of the World. With grace, rigor, and curiosity. Something like that. They'll know the difference. <laughs> they'll, 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 let, they'll get us right. One of the other reasons why we are a little out of time right now is yeah. that we have spent the last week in Northern Ireland. Yes. And we are still, we are currently in um, an Airbnb in Belfast, which is where we've been staying since we arrived. Yeah. It is like the best Airbnb I've ever stayed in. It really is. It's We're like, literally sitting in front of amazing fire right now mm-hmm. um, with a gorgeous bathtub upstairs, an amazing view out over the city. Um, yeah, it's pretty much... A dreamtastic Airbnb it has laundry in it. <laughs> there's um, a, there's a washing machine. Like, basically, if you have laundry, you're a ten, um, or whatever the rating system is. But so we are in Belfast, and we've been here uh, basically a week, and um, we've come out here on invitation from an organization called Aisht that is working. Um, in conflict zones. Basically, the dream of it is to work in conflict zones, but it's starting in Northern Ireland Mm -hmm. and starting um, particularly working with people who are connected to or working around reconciliation and what it's going to really take to have peace in this region um, beyond the peace agreement. And we got invited because of our work with Octavia's Brood and uh, Kate McCabe, who organizes with Aisht, reached out, like read the book and basically was like, okay, visionary fiction feels like something that Northern Ireland really needs. Like folks who have come through this conflict um, and been really defined by what, you know, we put in quotes the troubles here, but by the conflict that happened Mm -hmm. in this region, um, really, especially 
in this moment, which as we're sitting here, it's, uh, you know, just a couple of months until this Brexit, um, the Brexit decision might be implemented and folks here are feeling a lot of trepidation around mm-hmm. what is that going to mean? So and it's raising the tensions yeah, existing tensions that are just underneath the surface here at all times. Exactly. Um, around the border um, and the tensions that really represent all that remains unresolved yeah. from the conflict. And, you know, this idea of visionary fiction is to be able to give people a chance to say, let's look at what is. Let's look at the power dynamics of what is. Let's look at who gets centered in these stories and write new stories that actually embody the kind of futures that we want to call in. And we're doing the the trainings and workshops over the course of a week. And we've chosen to do it in a different way than, than I think we've ever done it before, which is to do some aspects of a cumulative collective visioning process, um, which has been really interesting because we're really working with people who are on different sides of of the conflict and Mm -hmm. and even now that really holds in a serious way um and and it's just been powerful it's been powerful and so uh today we thought it would be good to just sit down and kind of share some of our reflections and then we're also going to talk to some of the people who have been our great teachers here because you know, this is exactly what we're talking about, where what seems like the end of the world comes Mm -hmm. to a community, to a people, to a movement, to, um, uh, to, uh, and a generation. And then some people continue and what happens in that aftermath. And, um, and so I actually wanted to start off Autumn, asking you a little bit about, um, you know, you came in, you landed and immediately, we're in the car with one of our hosts, who oh. is Lawrence McEwen, who was um, a prisoner of war um, and a hunger striker in the conflict. And so I wanted to start off asking you kind of what was your first impression mm-hmm. of of Lawrence in Northern Ireland and the work that we were up to? Yeah, I'll have to say I was... Um this, I mean, the whole experience this entire last week has been deeply humbling, um, but certainly meeting Lawrence was very humbling. So I I came into this week um, with, I would imagine, probably a higher level of familiarity than most Americans would have with, um, with the conflict and um, with certain elements of the conflict here in Northern Ireland. Um, primarily because my partner, Genjo, is a Bobby Sands scholar. And Bobby Sands um, was a hunger striker during the conflict who died on hunger strike. Um, Both was elected to parliament and also died during the hunger strike. Um, And he is popularly um, understood as one of the the heroes of the conflict on the Irish Republican side. Um, and so over the last decade or so, I've been, um, I've learned and heard many stories about this, about this, um, this region. Um, but of course it's completely different to actually experience it directly. And I was actually quite nervous about meeting Lawrence, Uh um, just because, you know, um, there's something in that about like being confronted with the reality of, of someone who actually like lived this experience and right. just a little bit of background on Lawrence McEwen. Um, he's, um, he is someone who really began his life as a organizer and as a poet and playwright while he was imprisoned in the H blocks, um, in Northern Ireland. He went into prison at the age of 19. He was inside for 16 years Um, And when he was 24, he participated in the hunger strike, the same hunger strike during which Bobby Sands died. Um, Bobby Sands and 10 other people. Exactly. And Lawrence actually was on hunger strike for 70 days um, when he was, I think it was like day 69 or 70 that he slipped into a coma. So he actually was on hunger strike 
um, longer than anyone else. Um, right. He nearly died for the cause. And he was and prepared to die. I mean, he we're going to die. Him, yes. You know, so. so you'll hear more of his story when we interview him. Um, but he also, prior to that, he was part of the blanket protests, also known as the dirty protests. Um, and, um, and then, you know, was remained in prison for quite a lot, a bit longer than that, you know, didn't leave prison until he was in his early thirties. And so, um, and while he was in prison, he, um, became a writer, became an organizer, started, started at that time using the arts to, um, build solidarity and make change for the prisoners who were inside um, and communicate with those who were on the outside. Um, now he's, you know, he's in his um, mid to late 50s. He's a celebrated playwright. Um, he um, uh, just a really incredible human being. So, you know, so I got off the airplane, cleared customs, and he met me when I walked out of the gate. And um, then we hopped into his vehicle and we, we were on the road for what ended up being about two hours cause we made a few stops on the way. Um, and it was, he was delightful and, um, so easy to talk to. And, um, he's, I think it, it maybe sounds a little cliche to say, but he really is someone who has like a twinkle about him uh -huh. um, and kind of a mischief about him. Um, he's very magnetic, very intelligent, very curious, um, and very affable. So even talking about some of the most painful and dark times in his life, he... Pale times. Okay. Um, <laughs> truly pale here in Ireland. Um, but even inside of those conversations, he has a sort of... Um, he has an interesting sort of um, casualness and acceptance with which he discusses some of these things. Um, and really it's been, so between that first impression of meeting him and, and you know, a huge part of what we ended up talking about um, on our drive was our life as artists and just what it means to, um, to be someone who is both an activist and an artist and awesome. balancing that work and and particularly sharing with each other some of the um, some of our own journeys around making the transition towards like um, trying to more fully live our lives as artists, That's even right. inside of political struggle. The constant um, artist activist plight. Yeah, and and that that was just it was it was I feel like I personally felt like a lot of mentorship in that conversation. Mm -hmm. um, but then over the week since we've been here, it's been really, it was interesting to go from meeting him and just having that conversation. And then over the week that we've been here, being in the workshops, being in conversations with all these other people that we've met and realizing, really realizing how other people relate to him uh -huh. and how critical he is as a, um, a person who holds space for reconciliation in this region and a person who's widely regarded and respected for the particular risks that he's taken in order to um, build bridges, to reach across, to figure out a pathway forward. And one of the things that he has said multiple times since we got here and one of the things that we've heard from multiple other folks that we've spoken to, both folks who are also ex-prisoners or former IRA members, as well as those who are former unionists and um, people who um, maybe had in some way participated in or been in relationship with paramilitaries. There's just this refrain of um, whatever happened before is so terrible that we can't go back. We just cannot actually let our region descend back into that. And even if we have not yet reached a place of being able to access forgiveness or accountability or repair for the harm that's happened, we can't stop trying to reach for that accountability and that's repair right. and reconciliation because, because we remember. And that, I think, has been one of the other overriding <clears throat> um, learnings for me and I think for you as well one of the things that's been so intense about this trip is that like everyone we are talking to literally lived through this you know that the the conflict itself only came to an end and 
And I think that's even an open question about whether we could say that it actually came to an end. But this fragile peace was reached only 20 years ago. And so all of the folks that we've been interacting with are folks who both have lived through the conflict, have lived in this uneasy, fragile peace in the 20 years since then. And so they all directly remember and still live through the ongoing violence of the divisions every day. And so for them, it's so visceral and it has made for me and I think for both of us how visceral it is to be actively engaging in a reconciliation process and one that that where you can see clearly the ways that it's working and the ways that it's really not working because of how the power structures are actually inhibiting the reconciliation process or actively organizing against it. So mm. yeah, it's just been an education. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I'm curious to know, you know, so for context for our listeners, we were supposed to land. We were Adrian and I were supposed to be on the same (laughs) flight from we were supposed to both fly to Philadelphia and then get on the same flight from Philadelphia to Dublin. Um, But this huge snowstorm came through that caused delays on both of our sides. But on my end, it meant that I ended up not being able to travel until the following day. So you arrived a day earlier than I did. Um, And so I'm curious to know what your first impressions were as a part of landing, landing into the arms of our incredibly capable hosts. Um, And um, especially that first day that we spent after I arrived where we got uh, the tour of the Peace Wall in West Belfast um, and started getting our orientation with both Lawrence and with Will Glendening. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Will as yes, well and to. just like what your impressions have been. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, landing into Ireland, I feel like it's been such a long time coming on multiple levels. So a long time coming on the level of, I feel like it's been such a blessing to have Sam, to have Genjo in my life in terms of accessing Ireland and accessing um, his love of Ireland and his love of Irish revolutionaries and like his, his bringing that to our family and to the kids and to all of that. It's just like, I'm so grateful that I've had that influence in my life. Um, And I really felt that, you know, like for years before coming here, I've had this sense of like, okay, Ireland is like with us, you know what I'm right. saying? They, they do <laughs> There's some real we, solidarity you know, in Ireland. We're doing what we're doing. Um, and and um, Genjo's book that is basically a collection of Bobby Sands poetry and like reading that was was in a lot of ways my real entry into like what Bobby Sands had done, what the hunger strikers had done. And, um, and you know, so I come, I was like, I'm coming into this space and I know that the work is focused on reconciliation and anyone who looks at my life and my affiliations and what I care about, I think would be able to see kind of like, oh, in general, in any structure that of conflict, I roll with um, those who are anti-imperialist. You know, basically, it's like, which ones will throw up the Palestinian flag? That's my people. Right. You know, or like, <laughs> like I'm just sort of, you know, like that, that feels very clear and I feel unapologetic about that. And so I feel like um, Genjo had done a lot sort of in the years leading up to coming here to be like, you know, this matters, this, these people matter Mm -hmm. and what they're struggling with is very aligned. Um, so coming into the space, I was like, I've known Kate for a while and Kate, you know, when she had first reached out, I was like, really, you know, like visionary fiction, you know, is that, how is that going to land with people there? Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that constantly surprises me is how, like I'll do some work that I'm like, I know this feels important to me. I know it feels important to like the people I know, but then I'm always um, really shocked and humbled by how far something can reach and how hungry people are for some of the stuff that, that, um, that we're doing. And so I, you know, when Kate reached out, she was like, we're going to make it work. We're going to organize it. And it took three years of organizing and fundraising and talking to people to actually manifest this trip. So coming into it, I was just like, I'm going to really come into it with a lot of openness and a lot of trust of like, there's something happening here that's beyond what I know. And I just want to be a student. And even though we're coming to do workshops, I want to do them with a real student orientation. And so I think that's been really helpful because I didn't come in. I didn't, you know, 
I, there's other journeys I've gone where I'm like, okay, let me read all this stuff and come in with some more formulated opinions. Mm -hmm. And for this one, I was like, I want to learn from people telling their stories to us and I want to assess what's happening from that place. So landing in, you know, the first drive through Ireland is just like, Ireland is so Ireland. Like, <laughs> you know, it's so green with rolling hills and stone rock walls. Sheep are and everywhere. There's sheep and like <laughs> there's gorgeous bread food and, you know, cheese and dairy. And I mean, like it's just like everything mm -hmm. is what you, you know, all the stuff you ever heard about times 10. Mm -hmm. The grass is really greener here. And mm -hmm. And the sun um, is brighter. And the sun when is it's brighter. Out. There's rainbows all the time. <laughs> like there's gorgeous murmuration patterns. I mean, I've been having everyone on the on our in our crew can I think probably testify at this point to that my bird love is not a fake thing. <laughs> it's not. Fake. I really am like whoa. I have stopped in the middle of the street and almost gotten hit by cars because the birds here are really freaking awesome. Mm -hmm. So. Um, so first impressions was that was just like this place is as beautiful as I I ever imagined it to be, and then there's something happening in my soma that feels like a familiarity or a homecoming, and it's been really emotional to actually feel this. Like we received, you know, we did an ancestry test a while ago, and um, and found out that we actually had a lot of Irish ancestry, and it's not something we grew up having or grew up knowing about, right. you know, um. So there's a, there's just that, that other layer of like, you know, our, our test says this, we don't know the stories. We don't know the narratives. We don't know who it was. We don't know mm -hmm. what side they were we on. We don't even we don't know, know the family names, family right now. names. We don't know where they left. And, you know, I think we're going to continue trying to work on that stuff. But it was funny. We did a workshop today and we mentioned that and, and the women were like, all the Americans are sort of, you know, say they're sort of Irish and yeah. just was laughing. I'm like, of yeah. course, like who doesn't want to be a little Irish? It's freaking amazing and gorgeous and powerful and revolutionary here. Right. Um, so, but that was my, my, the first feelings I had were like, A, this place is so beautiful and B, there's something about it that satisfies me in a way that feels ancestral. Like I'm just mm -hmm. like, this feels so right. I love how this feels. <laughs> and I've gotten that in a few places in the world, which is the benefit of mixed heritage history, mm -hmm. <laughs> is that there's a few places like that that feel like Many deeply home. Um, so, so that's all been happening. And so then our first day of actually getting oriented to the space we are with Lawrence and Will Glendinning and our friend Sean Osborne, who's like documenting everything for us. And so they take us around, you know, we're doing this orientation. And I was a little like, what's, what's an orientation? Like, was that going to be to the workshops or what? Mm -hmm. They're like, no, we're going to show you this place. And so um, I want to speak for a moment about Will because, you know, Will and Lawrence are kind of these two parts of this puzzle mm -hmm. that that has been fascinating to get to know and observe. So where Lawrence was fighting on the side of the Republicans, which also is a trip to be in a country where the Republicans are like the revolutionary, the revolutionary radical left sort of side. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but that's where Lawrence was. And then Will came up in a union Protestant um, household and family. Mm -hmm. And but from a, you know, from a pretty early on age, he sub, he described his parents as liberal, like that they were pretty liberal, pretty progressive, mm -hmm. um, that he wasn't very religious necessarily. He's married, he's had two Catholic wives. Mm -hmm. So from very early on in his life, love was a force that allowed him to cross these boundaries that he was raised not to cross. And so he dedicated his life to that and started a, a project called Diversity Challenges that's really how do we bring these conversations together? Um, they've done all these different projects, including healing through remembering, all these different pieces. That Oral were like, how do we learn yeah. to tell our stories, to hear each other's stories, that we each have the right to tell our stories, and that if we don't begin to tell the stories, then we can't really begin to reconcile ourselves, to face what we've experienced and move forward. So he's, and he's, I have to say, he's just sweet. So like we described a little, like Lawrence has a twinkle in the mischief. Will gives you the like dad professor energy, right? <laughs> like he's like, I am scholarly, I am studying, I'm paying attention. He's a wealth of knowledge about all the things. And it's really powerful to watch the dynamic between him and Lawrence or him, Lawrence and Sean, because it's like, oh, you know, we just realized that first day we're driving around in a car 
with two people who are in prison and one person who was part of this force and Mm -hmm. that they have done work over decades to find a way to be comrades to each other. And so they drove us um, to see. Oh yeah. And that's another detail to add that Sean Osborne, the documentarian is also an ex prisoner, also a former IRA member. Yeah. So yeah, I was going to say that, but, we didn't find that out the first day. I didn't know that the first day. Right. That's so right. The, that was a surprise. Exactly. It was a total surprise to me. So the first day we go to the international wall, which is basically this wall of solidarity murals with all these movements. It includes stuff about what's happening here, but then it also has murals of solidarity with, um, it has like Frederick Douglass on the wall. It's got Che Guevara on the wall. It's got, um, solidarity with Palestine, solidarity with Palestine. And really like, I mean, everything, the politics here, the public expression of politics is very overt and it's very powerful to just be in a space where it's like, Oh, the public space, every surface there's it's covered with either murals or graffiti or symbols of like here's where you are here's what we believe here's our flag here's our stance Mm -hmm. and there's something both really challenging and refreshing about that but first we saw that wall and then drive around the corner to something they call the peace wall which is one of those places where the name um undermines the thing that it's longing (laughs) to create Mm -hmm. so the peace wall and i say that in quotes is really where the border was constructed particularly throughout the city of Belfast um, and where Catholics were on one side, Protestants were on another side. And you can see that it's built up over layers. So it's like there was an initial wall, but people could still throw stuff over that. And so they then raised it and then raised it again. Mm-hmm. And in Belfast, there's actually still a practice of closing those walls at nine o'clock at night, seven o'clock at night in some parts of it. And so you just have to know the schedule and, and drive around. Um, and so as we're going to these places, we're getting all these stories. People are telling us story after story of what's happened at these walls and children accidentally throwing something over the wall. like families crossing the wall or families living on opposite sides of the wall, mm-hmm. all these ways that just like, you know, as we're experiencing the, the move towards an even bigger wall in the U S cause I would argue that we cl- have tons of wall already oh, yeah. happening there. Um, or look, you know, we grew up in Germany, which at the time we grew up there, we were in West Germany and there was a wall. So, you know, walls, the wall, um, in between Israel, Palestine, these walls never, actually bring peace and more often they really foment and cement the power dynamics, the oppression, other things. And that's what this felt like. Absolutely. It was just like, this is the wall that has not actually garnered us peace. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the first night um, after doing this touring and after seeing all of these, these visuals and hearing all these stories, we drove down to a screening of a play that Lawrence had written called green and blue um, and the play was basically about these these two people who were both uh, police officers during the conflict, and they were on opposite sides, and their job was to hold this borderline. Mm-hmm. And so what we learned about was like all these car- all these people, like so there's you know the fighting actually happening amongst uh, amongst the Protestants and the Catholics, but then there were these folks who were like, my job is to actually hold this side of the border, and they had basically um what do you call it compatriots or something it's like they had their their counterparts counterparts mm-hmm. thank you on the other side of the wall they would often be like on the same schedule or whatever with someone over a long period of time where they were communicating back and forth to each other and the play was it's not necessarily to be like let's humanize police i didn't get that that energy at all from it it's more like how do we show as many aspects of what happened during this conflict as we possibly can. How do we hear the stories of every single faction, every single um, level of how this conflict played out? And so I just want to, you know, for me, that first impression that first day was this is so much more complex Mm. um, than I had understood. And I was really challenged by that play. (laughs) I was really challenged, you know, in a way I was like, oh, I don't know that I really can imagine um, being able to open myself so fully to hear the stories of those who are patrolling me right now and have the power to kill me right now. You know, the way I look at the police in the U.S. Mm -hmm. is like, 
you know, you, you're not here for my safety. You're almost always increasing my danger. Um, you're increasing the danger of all the people that I love. You never apologize. You never take accountability. Why would I ever want to humanize you? It feels dangerous to try to humanize right. you. And so it was powerful to sit in a room of survivors, of people who've been through the conflict, and watch all of them also viscerally grabbed and triggered by facing these these two characters and th it wasn't an easy play in mm -hmm. any way and it didn't come to any quick conclusions but I will say driving home after that that first full day I was just like okay we are really here as students and there's a lot that that there's ways that they're ahead of us ways that they're behind us all of that is the case like time is nonlinear, but there are also things that we have to learn from them about what does it truly mean to to move forward together, right? Like if we're not willing to actually hear everyone's experience and legitimize, like there are all these experiences. So one, I'll say this and then I'll, I wanna ask you also what, how that play landed with you mm -hmm. because I feel like such a big piece of the, the mm -hmm. setup for us. Um, but this idea that something that comes out really clearly in it is like so many people in this conflict just got pushed along a journey they just got put on a certain path and like there weren't a lot of questions around whether that was a right path or a wrong path or where they wanted to be or anything else. It was just like, I was born into this family. I was born into this experience. I was raised to think this, I was raised to fear the other. And I was raised to think that that was the most, those other people over there were the most dangerous people mm -hmm. and that my job had to be this. And, and so I got into this job and it, and for some of them, it wasn't until I got into the job that I started to question anything, mm -hmm. right? And for others, it's like, I never questioned anything. I got into this job. I didn't question it. I acted on the orders I was given, right? right? And it left me with that piece of like, how do we challenge the part of us that follows and that doesn't ask questions yeah. and that goes along with what we're told because that part of us is allowed to be um, weaponized against so much that is life and that is collectivity mm -hmm. and that is powerful um yeah so i was just i was moved by that because i think about our father being in the u.s military and how there was not really anything in his upbringing that would make him be like oh the u.s military is a force of imperialism that is killing brown people everywhere you know it wasn't until later in his life that you know, that he even interacted with people. He was like, oh, I, I have to rethink my role here yeah. in, in some way. So anyway, how did that play land on you? Well, certainly that, that element of the, the randomness of how people ended up on different sides of the conflict yeah. felt really real. You know, um, in the play, one of the things that Lawrence does a really beautiful job of in the writing oh, of right. the Did play. Oh, right. Did we say that Lawrence wrote it? Yeah, you said it. Okay, you said good. Um, <laughs> also, he had written yeah, it. Yeah, also, he wrote it. And, 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 Paula, and, he's, and yeah. he's brilliant. He's a brilliant playwright. Yeah, and, he is. and we also got to meet the artistic director of the, um, and the director of the Kibosh Theater Company that staged the play, Paula. And she just did a brilliant staging of it, which is one of the things I wanted to say something about. But um, but you oh, know, in the actually, just while you're saying that, I also want to say, um, as we were coming into the play, the person who introduced it ran the community center where it was being put on. And one of the things he said when he got up was like, we're creating a very gentle space where any question is welcome afterwards and staying after for a Q and a with us and a conversation is just as important as watching this play. Yes. And I was just blown away by all of that. You know, the, because it was a room full of people. I, I wouldn't say I got a gentle energy in that room. Like I was like, this is a room full of folks who could fight Our if they needed simmering. to. There's a simmer. There's mm -hmm. a brawl that is possible, right? And like if I was in Boston, I would be like, I have to go. But <laughs> because I was here and I'm like, I'm a guest and I'm invited, I'm going to soften right. and be present and trust. And just to hear that that was the invitation is like, let's be gentle, let's be here and let's yeah. ask these questions. Um, just felt like, oh, they're really up to something at that all these micro decisions right. are creating the possibility of folks even being able to hear something that is uncomfortable and necessary. And you can see how all of that has come through really painful learning, right? Exactly. That even, even knowing to introduce the space in that way. But, you know, so the play is really following this, you know, the, there's two characters in the play. There is an RUC officer who is, 
um, you know, RUC, it would be on the unionist side, the loyalist side, the Protestant side, the Protestant side. Um, but even, even that, you know, I mean, of course, one of the things that we're learning about while we've been here is, um, what is the actual relationship between being a loyalist or a unionist and being a Protestant? Right. What is the relationship between being a part of the British military infrastructure versus being a paramilitary who is where the British military is colluding with the paramilitaries to criminalize and enforce and do all of these really fucked up terrible things to the Catholics, to the those who are on the nationalist side. And then, of course, on the other side, learning what does it mean to be an IRA member or to be a national, uh, different from being a nationalist, as differentiated from being a Catholic, you know, exactly. that all these identities overlap with each other, but not completely. Exactly. And so that, that was one of the things that, you know, the play really lays bare because it's like the play, the characters in the play are an RUC officer and an Irish guard. And, you know, so one is a military personnel. The other is an Irish police officer. Both are responsible for holding this border. But both characters, in a way, feel disconnected from the politics of the border. And it was beautifully illustrated by this moment in the play where the two officers end up walking out to the border to meet each other in person. And there's this incredibly poignant, but also deeply comical moment where they both very like, um, uh, exaggeratedly try to figure out where the border actually is. Cause of course it's an invisible line and then very comically step over it. Mm-hmm. And you know, that this sort of moment of being like, do you even know where this actual border is? And let's play around with the idea that we're crossing it. And, um, and it, it was just so, um, it was so powerful. And so, I, I mean, I remember even that moment, even though it was also funny, it brought me to tears because yeah. one of the, one of the, one of the things that's really being communicated in the staging of the play is, is how little choice so many people had in how to engage in the conflict once things were really deeply underway Um, and how much the randomness of like of birth had to do with where people what side people ended up on and Mm -hmm. how they understood what it meant to be on that side Um, now that's not to say you know um um, as a leftist, it's not to say that people don't have responsibility for understanding the political conditions that they're operating inside of and right. making making liberatory choices. Right. Um, and so, and actually, that's almost always how liberatory choices come about. You know, with all the people we've been talking to, those who have ended up in a in a liberatory state are the ones who are like, I question what I was told yes, because something in me recognized that what I was doing was inhumane, cruel, violent, Mm -hmm. nonsensical, irrational, et cetera. And like, that feels like the, you know, when I think about how our mom married our dad, you know, it's like, it's tied in. It's like, even if you're raised in a racist condition, you being able to recognize the humanity of someone you've been told is not human Mm -hmm. or less than human or an animal or three fifths or you're whatever inferior. Mm -hmm. Right. Is, is part of, it's like we know that that is possible for all humans. Right. It doesn't always happen. I do think, too, that the the Q&A after the play was fascinating to experience. Um, well, one was, I mean, so sitting in the space that, that the play was happening in and experiencing, you know, because the people who attended the play, the com- we were in a community called Nuri, and the people who attended the play are folks who were Catholic, are Catholic, are um, on the nationalist side of this conflict. And so just experiencing their visceral response to the actors walking onto the stage and one of the actors being in an RUC uniform um, and the way that that, you know, that that came through as a really felt response to the play um, in the Q&A and the way that folks were really engaging with the the um, the terror and anger and sadness that everyone still lives inside of uh, post-conflict. And and I feel like, you know, 
that whole first day for both of us was so much learning. And for sure, during the Q&A, just even more details really started to unfold. Like one of the things that Paula mentioned during the Q&A after the play, Paula is the artistic director again, um, is that, um, that the suicide rates in the wake of the conflict have skyrocketed in Northern Ireland and that actually more young people have been lost to suicide since the peace agreement than were lost during the entire duration of Um, the conflict. Yeah. And that, you know, so it really drove home the importance of this kind of work. And one of the, one of the, one of the projects that, Kabash, the theater company, that Lawrence as a playwright, that Kate McCabe as the director of Aisht, that Will Glendening as the director of Diversity Challenges, the project that all of these folks are up to is creating a way to actually work through and deal with the trauma from the conflict because, because there's so much that was left completely unresolved and without a path to resolution when the peace accord was signed, including, and this is one of the reasons why Kate brought us in, including that there was no vision for how resolution, how, how people would actually deal with the trauma as a community, as a collective community and how the community itself would vision what the future should look like together. That's right. That's right. And, you know, something I feel like I kind of want to share this other thing, which feels important to me, because if anyone else is like me, I'm like, I'm still struggling to understand. So just to say the conflict was around what is the conflict around? What do people want? Right. Mm -hmm. Is the Catholic side, the nationalist side, the goal is a united Ireland is to not have this border to not have a divide to not have a a border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland which is considered a part of the British uh, or a part of the United Kingdom the United Kingdom right Um, but to just be like we are a united Ireland Mm -hmm. and the unionist side or loyalist side which aligned with the Protestant side for the most part in that Venn diagram of overlaps um, wanted to be able to keep, you know, have that border and, and be a part of the United Kingdom. And so that just that very, very basic little thing feels important to be like, okay, mm-hmm. so this is what folks are fighting for. Um, and then it, because it feels relevant for like all this trauma still exists and was never quite healed and was never quite reconciled. And now this Brexit moment is happening where once again, people are trying to figure out. So if Brexit happens, where does that leave Northern Ireland? Is that an, is are we back in the place of having that same fight of now we should unite Ireland? No, mm-hmm. now we need a hard border because this is actually going to be a part of what? Right? Because so, now Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, will be a part of the EU, but Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK would not be a part of the exactly, EU. Exactly. Right? right. So just wanted to like slow that down a little bit in there because um, I'm like. I really feel like I keep, I've been, it's taken me days of listening to be able to be like, all right, right? Um, and I think that that is often the case with these deep conflicts where we get so far into it that the question of what we actually want is Mm -hmm. it's like we take for granted that everyone would understand what we're trying to fight for. And sorry, just one other detail that feels important to name is that this con the, the conflict, the period of the conflict that we refer to as, that people globally refer to as the Troubles, lasted from 72 to 94. But it's really important to contextualize that this like battle, from the nationalist perspective, the battle for a free and independent and united Ireland is like 800 years old. Exactly. That the period of colonization from exactly. the British Empire started almost 1,000 years ago. Exactly. And so that... that that for people who are part of the IRA, part of the of the of a sort of like nationalist ethos, that they see their battle yes. as they see themselves in a long lineage of Irish revolutionaries who have been fighting for the freedom of the Irish for all of this time. Exactly, and that's why we would be in alignment because fuck British imperialism. Mm-hmm. Um, the sun will set on that, but it feels like. Um, really this crucial moment to be like, oh, what does an Irish national identity mean 
what does it mean in the context of this place? And that's kind of where our workshops have been entering into this is just like, okay, let's ask this question. What would a free and thriving, healthy, safe, you know, what, what are the things? Mm -hmm. And they've been putting that forward. Um, We were talking about this on one of our drives through the countryside um, that we were talking about it on one of our drives. (laughs) That's the last time it'll happen. I just want to say I've been Um, so disciplined in not doing any Irish accent or limerick in front of anybody. You're doing so good. Um, And you're not. And I'm not. I'll stop. Um, But we were talking about this, that one of the things that's so fascinating about the Catholic Church um, is that Well, I mean, the Catholic people often make the joke that it's like Catholic Church with a small C because it's Uh such a huge um, body. Yeah. And that means that the that some of the limbs operate very differently from one another and have different functions. And and there's a strong, strong tradition of mysticism, of liberation theologies, of radical um, spiritually based act, political activity right. inside the Catholic Church, and that's been the case for the life of the Catholic Church. And so it's it is really interesting to hold like the all of the complexity of what the Catholic Church is, yes. um, and and see all of that complexity mirrored in this community, um, and right. and to see the various ways that folks have tried to sort of like. I mean, I feel like the theme of this trip in a way has been like an uneasy piece yeah. and that you can see that reflected across all of these different parts of the conflict, both the conflict itself, but also the ways that the conflict has forced people into confrontation with their own belief systems mm-hmm. and forced them to sort of figure out like, well, what does it mean for me to hold this identity while and be in relationship with my ancestors who hold this identity while also being engaged in this political struggle in this particular way like what part of my belief system and am I able to call on who among my ancestors am I able to call on and who or what am I having to actually um let go of or disregard in order to be able to participate in a way that actually like is aligned with my values that's right and I think that like we keep we keep hearing that story um as we talk to different folks and seeing it you know like again i keep raising that like we're with people who in our lifetimes were embroiled on such opposite sides that they were willing to fight for it and die and die for it and went to the brink of death for it and are now sitting around a room together over wine and appetizers trying to figure out reconciliation and 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 one thing I want to point to because so that that second day Sean did that touring and showing us around and then we had a little um gathering at the house you know for some of the people who were like supporting or um have been supporters of the work and it was interesting to watch everyone you know be in the room and be like there's so many levels of code happening in this space where you know people just kind of know like through different ways that you pronounce something what you call something who you roll with what organization you work with there's like all these different levels of code by which people assess like Mm -hmm. where are you relative to this line that still exists that is still invisible that is not invisible that is always here Mm -hmm. um and watching how they all navigate it the silence is as important as what gets spoken. Yeah. So like, you know, people will say something and you'll watch as folks who, you know, represent whatever the opposite side or another side to that don't say anything. And that the silence is actually one of the major strategies of peace is like knowing when do I speak up and when do I say, I don't agree with that. I don't have to say anything about it in this moment. Mm -hmm. And that I think if I was to say like, huh, you know, like, what is one thing that I'm like, oh, I never thought about that one. You know, like, it's not that I never think about that, because when I'm doing mediation, a lot of times that's one of the things I'm asking the the couples or the pair that I'm working with or the group that I'm working with to try out is like, you don't have to say everything. You can know it. You can disagree with it. Mm-hmm. You don't have to say everything. And, and that's because probably the other person already knows you disagree. Right. You know, 
they still probably wanna, you've already said you've it. You've probably already times. said it, right? And we had a, a therapist years ago who who taught us this thing of like just say it once and you let only it need be. To say it once. Right? You only need to say it once. And you know, shout out to Joyce. But I always think about that because in these scenarios, what you want to do is say it until the other person understands that you are right and submits to your and correctness, it. right? Mm-hmm. And agrees with you and comes around to your side and then there's no more conflict. And in this scenario, it's like the opposite is true, is that these are folks who are like, we are decades into our belief systems and it's not going to change because you say something smarter, I say something smart. And I have to actually let you tell your story without needing to correct you sometimes. And and mm-hmm. I have to be willing to tell my story without worrying that I'm going to hurt you sometimes. And that both sides have to be willing to, to listen mm-hmm. and to be silent, like the silence and also just the, the desire to correct, you know, that part around like, well, actually the truth is this other thing. Like I'm watching these communities be like, there's not a truth. Yeah. I have mine and I know you have yours and we are going to keep walking another step together with both of these truths or all of these truths walking with us. Yes. And it's so powerful. And one of the other things that has been blowing my mind is this like, it, it just seems like there's a shared recognition that recognition that the resolution will not come from there not being sides. Right. And that's been like, yeah, like really hard. It's been very challenging for me. Right. Yeah. Because not in a conscious way, but more in a sort of like um, it, it's been showing me that in an unconscious way, yeah. I subscribe to the idea that resolution comes through they're not being sides right. that people eventually getting to a place where they can recognize that there are no sides. Right. And where there's a common <laughs> or Bleh. dream. And, and yeah. And that's mm-hmm. like, or that like we can only feel reconciled if we feel like we're actually working on the same side. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just so apparent in this process that yeah. it's like, no, 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 no. Like that our goal is not for there to not be sides. Yeah. In fact, we have to be in right relationship with the fact that there are real fucking sides to this conflict yeah. if we are going to actually reconcile. Yes. And that I, I'm yeah. still I feel like I'm still trying to digest the like what could that mean in my life? What could that mean in my work? What could that mean in a US context? Because you know, this has been one of the other things that's been like so mind blowing for both of us. You know, it's been <laughs> I have to say, Adrian, it's been really interesting to be kicking off the workshops side by side with you. And there's always a certain point in the opening of the workshop where both of us are describing what our activist work is. Yes. And where you really name that you're doing black liberation work and you're primarily working with black folks. Mm -hmm. And I really name that I'm doing work that's focused on ending white supremacy and that I'm primarily working with white folks. I know. And, (laughs) And even, and it's one of those interesting things to sort of like, Consciously, I know that always. Yeah. And then, but then to sit side by side with you in these rooms and name that like, we are also working on both sides of a pretty intense conflict (laughs) happening in the U.S. I've been noticing that too. And And I've never, before we got here, mm -hmm. I really never thought of it that way. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm just like, you do your radical work and I do my radical work. We're all doing radical work. We're all, you know, and it's like, I think in some ways, because I'm like, you know, you work with multiracial groups, but like, and I really, do, you do. But, but I think even for me, I have downplayed in my own heart and mind how much time you spend really working with white people around whiteness, right? Because I'm just mm-hmm. like, I can't really do that work. I can't. I tried it, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, <laughs> it just doesn't work. Tried it. I tried it. Failed. But, um, but you know, yeah. I, or like failed in my heart. I was like, I just, I don't have what it takes to do this. I really have to dedicate myself to this other kind mm-hmm. of work. But it has been powerful. And it feels like it's been powerful for the rooms for us to be like, we are sisters, and we are aligned in a lot of our beliefs. And here's the places where we choose to do right. our work. Here's where we're doing our work. And and it's felt really like it's just been forcing me to reflect on the nature of the conflict in the U.S. in a different way. You know, one of the things that we keep talking about when we're leading the workshops is that, like, you know, in the U.S., 
um, the differences are visually marked. And so, um, so there are codes and cues that you look for to get a sense of where someone falls on a political divide. But underneath it all, you know, for most of us as women of color, we look at any white person and we automatically assume their untrustworthiness. Uh It's like, even if they have all the right cues and codes, we know that white people tend towards they even even those who profess solidarity and allyship with our movements will usually default to domination when push comes to shove. Right. The we distinction know between like active racism that. and passive white supremacy. Yes. Right. Both and and that's so like no shade on all of my like I have I, I have a lot of white friends. Do you have white friends? Um, <laughs> Um, and but I mean, but it's like because and I say no shade truly because I'm talking about socialization that like white folks are socialized towards a certain level of cowardice that's very hard to overcome. Yeah. And so we know we know that. And yet we're operating here in this context where like where we're coming in and we can't tell the difference between the Catholics and the Protestants right. here. Everybody looks Irish. fucking Irish to us <laughs> and and yet for them like they 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 know who they're working with and who they're not working with they see it all very clearly yeah. and it's really really interesting to be like oh I think you were saying this maybe even today in the workshop that like oh it's like Octavia Butler talks about the fatal flaw of humans being the combination of hierarchy and intelligence that it doesn't that like you can take race off the table entirely. Humans will still come up with a way to divide and conquer and dominate each other and then encode it and encode it. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately the project is what are we going to fucking do about that? Yes. <laughs> and that's where, you know, it's like I think coming here. I always feel um, it's interesting to still feel this this far into my political work and my political career. But I always feel this like this isn't going to be useful. Like y'all, you know, like the rooms we've been in, almost every room we've been in has been with people who have lost someone that they loved or were deeply impacted by these these troubles, this conflict. And so you walk into that space and you're like, what can I give to you? Right. Like, what can I offer you? I want to offer you something that will help and liberate and grow you and like what can I offer you and how is sci-fi going to be enough right Mm -hmm. how is visionary fiction going to be enough right Mm -hmm. and what's been amazing is to be like right visionary fiction is really all that and a bag of chips and it's been great you know shouting out Walida E. Marisha who really coined this term and like pulled it together Mm -hmm. and Walida and Morgan uh, Bell Phillips who the two of them really co-created the outline of this workshop that we've been doing. Um, And, you know, we riff off of it in a lot of directions, but they created the skeletal Mm -hmm. version of this thing. And it's like, it's such a dependable structure because it really says no matter what trauma you've been through, no matter what harm you've been through, you have the right to shape the future. And if you're not intentional about it, you will be a victim of the future. But if you take intentionality, Mm -hmm. if you take responsibility, then you get the right to shape the future. Thanks for listening to our show. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Under the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. See, I've been up and I've been down. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash end of the world show. Another incredibly helpful thing you can do to help our show sustain itself is to write us a review on Apple Podcasts if you're an iPhone person. How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the incomparable Zach Rosen. Music for today's show comes from Tunde Alaniran and Mother Cyborg.